to episode nine of our Catholic Campus Ministry Summer School podcast series looking at different heresies in the history of the Catholic Church. My name is Deacon Matt. I'm the Catholic Campus Minister at Western Carolina University. And today we are going to be talking about two different medieval heretics, John Wycliffe and John Huss. Now, last week we looked at um, another medieval heresy, uh, the Waldensian movement that began in the 13th century and is named after a man named Waldo, or as uh, was later attributed uh, to him, the name Peter, Peter Waldo. And the chief error there was Waldo's refusal to submit to proper ecclesial authority. He uh, started uh, a movement within the church devoted to poverty, uh, much like St. Francis, uh, a contemporary of his, would, um, and, and to preaching, uh, again, like, much like St. Dominic started an order devoted to preaching. But unlike Dominic and Francis, he did so without approval from the church. In fact, he was specifically told by the church authorities that he, um, as a layperson and his followers, as untrained laypersons, uh, were not permitted to, to preach because they didn't have the theological training uh, for that, uh, but they persisted in their, their preaching mission uh, against the, the express um, uh, orders of their superiors in the church, and then that uh, disobedience to the church would then lead them down the road to embrace other more specific um, errors. Uh, it would lead them into to heresy. But that whole thing began with that willingness to separate themselves from church authority. Um, and, and we'll see that trend continue as we, we look at some of these other um, medieval heretical movements within the church. Um, and as we looked at the Waldensians last time, we kind of saw that, you know, their, their actual beliefs and practices varied quite a bit depending on what other um, non-Catholic or anti-Catholic uh, groups they came in contact with and were influenced by. So in southern France and in northern Italy during the 13th century, they resembled the Cathars that we uh, looked at in the episode before that. Um, later in the 16th century, they adopted uh, Calvinist theology um, and it really joined in with the Protestant uh, churches that were that were growing up at the time. So today they actually still exist. We and we talked last week about the town of Valdez, North Carolina, which began as a a Waldensian colony in North America, and we mentioned that the Waldensian church that still exists there today um, is a Presbyterian church. They belong to the Presbyterian denomination. So um, you know that the, the common thread in all of these groups is that none of them were, were Catholic, and so the, the Waldensians uh, were more comfortable falling in with them than with coming back into um, uh, a state of, of communion uh, with the church, which would also require obedience to church authority. Um, and we see this same spirit of disobedience manifesting itself in, in later medieval heresies um, as, as well. Um, but I want to talk before we get into that about the, the state of the church and the state of Europe as we kind of progress through the Middle Ages. Um, we had talked before about the, the renaissance of the 12th century and the great flowering of culture and, and learning uh, and art that was going on in Europe um, during that time. Um, the, the, the dominance of the church in people's minds and hearts, um, the rise of, of a lot of great orthodox movements um, in, the, in the church, the founding of universities, uh, the founding of some of the great religious orders. Uh, I mentioned the Dominicans and the Franciscans already. Um, but we also talked about how that same atmosphere of, of growth and exploration and curiosity uh, would also give rise to you know, certain heterodox um, uh, thoughts such as you know what we see among the Cathars and the Waldensians and so forth. But as we as we move beyond that period of the Middle Ages and we come to the 14th century and the early 15th century, we're really dealing with a very different situation in terms of the life of the church and and just the life of Europe in general. Um, in fact, you could easily say that this, the faith was in a, a period of decline 
during this this latter part of the Middle Ages. Um, just to give you a few of the the facts of life of this time period, um, the the dates between 1309 and 1377. This is a period in in church history that is known as the Babylonian captivity. Now that name is a reference back to ancient times when the people of Israel were held captive by the Babylonian Empire and uh, were actually removed from their lands and transplanted to, to different uh, different other lands that the Babylonians held. And so, um, but what the Babylonian captivity of the 14th century refers to is um, a very long period when the papacy was not centered in Rome, but in Avignon in the south of France. Um, the, the Pope was still the Bishop of Rome, but the Bishop of Rome was not actually in Rome. And this, this began under the reign of Pope Clement V, who was from France. Um, and during his, his papal reign, there was a lot of unrest and a lot of turmoil and things going on um, in Italy around Rome. Uh, at that time, he, he didn't feel safe. And so for a variety of reasons, he, he went back to France and just kind of established his base of operations as the Pope in Avignon in France, and then uh, just a long succession of popes after him continue to maintain that pre presence in Avignon, even though they were officially bishops of Rome. They were not in Rome. So that period is known as the Babylonian captivity, when the papacy was located in Avignon. Even more troubling to the church was the, the period immediately following that, between the years 1378 and 1415. Now, this time is known as the Great Schism, or the Great Western Schism. And those years are marked by multiple claimants to the papacy, both in Rome and in Avignon. So you'd have, um, uh, you know, a, a pope in Rome, and you have a pope in Avignon. Now, you know, there can legitimately only be one pope, but both of these men were claiming to be the official bishop of Rome and therefore the rightful pope, and it was unclear to people at the time which one was legitimate. Now, historically, you know, we can look back at this period and we can trace the, that line of succession and we can identify who exactly was the legitimate bishop of Rome, and so if you look at, um, you know, the, the names of these people, You'll notice like one will be called Pope and, and the other will be called anti-Pope. And, and that's a judgment that we can make from our perspective in history looking back. But at the time, while this was going on, it was not clear to a lot of people in the church which one of these two claimants is the legitimate Pope. That was an open question. And so it was a period of great confusion and turmoil within the church. And the, the latter part of that, that era was even more confusing because... There was a third papal claimant introduced into the mix. This happened in the year 1409. A council was called in the town of Pisa, um, and that council wanted to resolve this, this situation. And so a, a new pope was elected by that council, or a new claimant to the papacy, a new bishop of Rome was elected during that council, the idea being that the other two would step down and kind of withdraw their claims to the papacy. Um, but that didn't happen. And so both of the papal claimants, the one in Rome and the one in Avignon, continued to claim that they were the rightful bishop of Rome. And then now there's this third person that was elected by the Council of Pisa to be bishop of Rome. And so between the years 1409 and 1415, there were actually three people all claiming to be the pope at the same time. So that alone would be enough to really throw the church into uh, a, a period of great turmoil and confusion. But while all of that was going on, society in general was also going through a period of, of just great turmoil, the chief cause of which was the Black Death or the bubonic plague. This is, you know, probably... The, one of the worst, if not the worst, um, uh, outbreaks of illness that that ever has struck 
you know, humanity. It, it hit Europe right around the middle of the, the 14th century, uh, the year 1347, and before it was done, it had killed at least one-third, some estimates have it as high as two-thirds, of the population of Europe, right? The largest outbreak of the bubonic plague was, was right there in the middle of the 14th century, but then smaller outbreaks would continue to erupt at least once per decade. It would just flare up again, right? Um, and through the end of the 14th century, and then a little bit more sporadically, really for the next few centuries after that, it really lingered on. But the 14th century was when it really hit the hardest. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine the impact between one-third and two-thirds of the population just gone, you know, dying within a period of a few years. Um, you know, if you imagine half the people in your family dead by this time next year, half the people in your neighborhood dead, half the people who, who go to church at your parish dead, half the people that you go to school with or half the people that you work with just gone um, within a really short time frame. This was devastating, not only to people personally, but to society as, as a whole. What this meant in, in terms of you know, the life of medieval Europe is that there were a lot of fields that did not get planted. There were a lot of crops that did not get harvested. Um, this, this led to further outbreaks of, of famine and uh, just society as a whole decaying. You know, work that needed to be done simply was not done because there weren't people there to do it any longer. Um, and a lot of times in the villages that were the hardest hit by the plague, there weren't enough survivors left in that village to even properly dispose of the dead bodies. I mean, society was just crumbling apart because of the, the death and destruction that was caused by the bubonic plague. And the hardest hit element of society was, in fact, the church. What would happen is that when the Black Death would come to a village and people would begin to get sick and to die, you know, a lot of people would flee that village, which, you know, if they did so after they were infected, it would just spread that disease to another place. But you know, people didn't really understand very well the mechanism of, of how these diseases worked. But nevertheless, people would flee that village except for the clergy. Um, the clergy would remain in the village and in some cases even go to villages that were hit by the plague so that they could minister to the sick and to the dying, that uh, they could administer the last rites, that they could provide Christian burial. And so... When other people fled, it was a clergy that stayed behind, which meant that the clergy had a much higher than average rate of infection. And there are, you know, most estimates say that 50%, right, half of all the clergy in the Catholic Church died because of the Black Death during this, this time. And so, you know, the church... You know, I was going to say the church was decimated, but really that doesn't do it justice, right? The word decimated means one in ten are dead. This is, this is one in two, right? One in two, half of all the clergy, gone. And so the Catholic church was in a much, much weakened position um, because of the Black Death, let alone all the turmoil and the confusion and just everything that was kind of coming from the top down with this uncertainty about who the legitimate um, you know, Bishop of Rome was. So, you know, and plus there's a lot of other stuff happening during the 14th century. There's kind of political turmoil, there are wars that are happening, and, and we're not going to go into all of that, but suffice it to say, unlike the 12th century, nobody was calling the 14th century a renaissance by, by any... <laughs> you know, way, shape, or form. It was a pretty bad uh, bad time for Europe and bad time for the church. Um, so what were some of the criticisms and things that people were making against the church at this time? Well, obviously, people thought that the whole confusion over who was the legitimate pope was uh, a subject for criticism, rightly so. Um, but more than that, a lot of the higher-ranking clergy in general, right, the really high-ranking bishops, including the Pope himself, were uh, the subject of a lot of criticism because of their attachment to, to wealth and to property. Um, the papal household itself, for example, in Avignon, 
was was humongous. There was a tremendous bureaucracy that was associated with the papacy, and having uh, that bureaucracy in Rome and then now replicated in Avignon um, required a lot of the church's resources, a lot of money to operate, um, and then you add a third claimant, you know, to that in the the early fifteenth century, and it's really expensive to maintain that that whole bureaucracy. Um, a lot of the higher-ranking bishops, as I said, a, apart from the Pope, were also living pretty high on the hog, and the desire for for income for them led to a lot of abuses among the bishops. Um, the bishops would derive their income from the, the sees that they uh, presided over, and so one of the abuses um, was uh, a practice called pluralism, which is where a bishop would be bishop of more than one diocese at a time. So you'd be bishop of this place, you'd also be bishop of, of this place. So if you think about it in, in terms that we're familiar with here in North Carolina, it would be like if the bishop of Charlotte was also named to be bishop of Raleigh, and you know he was bishop of both of these places. Or it didn't even have to be a diocese that was close by. So it would be like the bishop of Charlotte also being named, you know, the bishop of Long Island, you know, for example. Um, and so that's that's one abuse. This this practice of pluralism of a bishop being bishop of more than one one church, um, and then that led to another abusive practice, which is absenteeism. And absenteeism is when the bishop is not actually present in his diocese. Um, and of course, if you're going to be bishop of more than one diocese simultaneously, you you can't do that without practicing absenteeism because you can't be in more than one place at a time. Um, so uh, what would happen usually is that the bishop would appoint a priest from that diocese to kind of handle the administrative uh, stuff um, of of that diocese, and then that administrative priest would be paid, you know, a small portion of the income from that diocese, the majority of which would be kept by the bishop who wasn't actually physically present. Um, and of course, the chief practitioner of absenteeism was the Pope himself, who was in Avignon at the time. Even though he was Bishop of Rome, he wasn't actually in in Rome. So there wasn't a big push from the higher authorities in the church to correct this, because it was the higher authorities in the church that were the ones who were guilty of this abuse. Um, and you know and of, of course one of the chief problems with absenteeism is it creates this separation between the bishop and his people the bishop is supposed to be the the pastor of the church the chief shepherd of his flock and you can't be shepherd of a flock unless you're with the flock um so again to think about it in in our modern day terms that we're familiar with imagine if if the bishop of charlotte didn't actually live in charlotte but spent most of the year in miami Right? Maybe he'd come to Charlotte once or twice a year to sign some things, celebrate some confirmations or something like that. But if he was in Miami for 10 months out of the year, how much affection would the people of Charlotte have for their bishop? How much respect would they have for their bishop if he wasn't actually present there? So absenteeism really um, gave a lot of people in the church a, a, a bad taste in their mouth when it came to to these higher-ranking bishops. Um, now, of course, I don't want to paint the picture here that the church was like all bad or all corrupt at this time, because while all this is going on, those um, orders that we mentioned before, like the Franciscans and the Dominicans that had begun in the early these earlier centuries were really growing and flourishing during this time. Despite all of the, the other decline that we've been talking about, these religious orders that specifically embraced a life of poverty and simplicity, they were growing. And so this is part of the church or part of the life of the church where you really saw um, a lot of flourishing. And so you had these two kind of contradictory movements or elements here, this, these, these religious orders devoted to poverty and, uh, and their form of spirituality was, was really taking off and flourishing. And then you had the, the corruption and the worldliness that you saw among the higher ranking members of, of the, the church hierarchy. Um, and, and people could see the difference. 
people could see the difference. They had a lot of affection for these religious orders that embraced poverty, and they had a lot of disdain for the, the higher-ranking members of the clergy that were embracing a much more grandiose uh, and affluent lifestyle. So that's kind of the situation there that the church finds themselves um, in, um, and this is the, the situation that is being addressed by the first person that we're going to talk about today, and that's John Wycliffe. Um, John Wycliffe was born um, around the year 330 um, in, in uh, a little town called Wycliffe that's near York in northern England. Um, we don't know a whole lot about his early life, but um, he, he did earn a theology degree from the University of Oxford. And while he was there at Oxford, he was ordained a priest. And he, um, he composed several works on sacred scripture. Um, it, he's even attributed with translating the Bible into English. Um, some people will wrongly attribute him as being the first to translate the Bible into English. Um, that's not true. There were English Bibles prior to Wycliffe. He may or may not have been the first person to translate the entire Bible into English. Um, historians debate that fact. Um, but there there were English editions of the Bible around before Wycliffe. Not very common. Um, again, a lot of the reasons that we've talked about in earlier episodes, this was before the invention of the printing press. Most people would never have the um, uh, the ability to to own an entire book because books were items of great wealth, um, and most people were illiterate and couldn't read a book if they had one. Um, those who were literate, who had been educated, um, could typically read Latin, and so having Latin editions of these texts, such as the Bible, made a lot more sense, um, just in terms of efficiency. Uh, but nevertheless, there were English editions of most of the books of the Bible around, and, and Wycliffe himself you know, translated the Bible uh, as a whole um, into, into English. Um, a lot of people also will think that it was the fact that he translated the Bible itself that got him into trouble later on with the Catholic Church, and that's also not, strictly speaking, true. He, he ran into difficulties with the Catholic Church for other reasons, uh, not because he translated uh, the Bible per se. So, anyway, he translated the Bible into, into English. Um, he also wrote uh, several treatises on authority, uh, both divine authority as well as civil authority. Um, he wrote a treatise um, on the office of the king. Um, and he wrote a treatise on the nature of the, the church. And throughout all of his writings, one thing that came through very clearly um, is his severe criticism of the hierarchy of the church for failing to live up to Christ's example of poverty. Um, he, he really harshly criticized the church for um, owning wealth, and for uh, practicing an affluent lifestyle, especially the, the higher-up members of, of the hierarchy, the high-ranking bishops and the popes. Um, so as you can imagine, this, this criticism that he had of those in, uh, in authority in the church um, led to a lot of scrutiny of his works by the bishops. Um, he first started to get in trouble with the bishops in the year 1377, um, when um, several um, articles from his works were criticized by the Bishop of London. Um, he attended a conference in the next year, 1378, where he was able to kind of give an explanation for some of his writings, and, you know, that ended well. He's still in the good graces with the church at this point. Um, he had a lot of protection also from people in civil authority. He particularly had protection from the Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, who was son of King Edward III and, and the father of King Henry V. Um, there seemed to be a certain faction among the English nobility at the time that saw um, an advantage to them in Wycliffe's anti-clerical uh, preaching, and so they, they offered Wycliffe some political protection, which, you know, protected him to, to some extent from criticism from his superiors in the church, uh, but not entirely, right? Um, he's not, he's a priest in the church, he's not immune from ecclesial authority. Um, so in the year 1382, the Archbishop of Canterbury there in England, he convened a provincial synod, so a, a more regional meeting of the bishops, 
And at that synod, there were 24 specific propositions that Wycliffe had made that were found to be um, heretical. Um, later that same year, the, uh, the University of Oxford approved um, the findings of that synod and forced Wycliffe to resign from his teaching position there. Um, and he retired to his parish, and he remained there until the year 1384, when he apparently died of, of natural causes. Um, so once he quit teaching, um, he was pretty much left alone, you know, um, probably because he had, like I said, powerful allies among the English nobility. Um, so what was it that he was teaching that um, the church found to be heretical? It wasn't just his criticism of the, the clergy, um, a lot of which was understandably justified, uh, but there were other things. So one characteristic of his teaching was a very strict reliance upon Scripture as the sole norm for the faith. He didn't go quite so far as Martin Luther would later on, in, in making sola scriptura, or, or scripture alone, kind of the bedrock doctrine of his creed. Um, but he did rely on scripture pretty much exclusively for his ideas of how the church should be structured, what the church should be like. And, you know, it's not hard to understand why he would do this, because like I said, the teaching authority of the church at this time, you know, you have multiple people claiming to be the pope, you know, the teaching authority was in shambles, and it was the, the the people that he was criticizing the most were the bishops who had that teaching authority. So if you're going to criticize the people who, by rights, should have the highest teaching authority, what authority do you appeal to? And so it makes sense that he would appeal to, to Scripture and use Scripture as his measuring rod by which he is judging the state of the church. Right, so that's that's part of what um, what got him in into trouble was just his um, his appeal to scripture above and beyond the teaching authority of of the church, um, but that led him to other you know erroneous notions because of course scripture itself isn't an authority, um, and I want to make clear what I mean by that. We as Catholics believe that scripture is the inspired word of God. So how can I say that scripture is not an authority? Well, authority is something that rests in persons. The, the root word of authority is author. So authority is, implies a certain amount of control because of authorship. Now, the author of all creation is God. God is the ultimate authority. But then God shares his authority with others. And so... We know, for example, because Christ is God, that Christ has all the authority of God. And then we see in the New Testament Christ giving specific shares of his authority to, to men, to the twelve apostles. He gives them the authority to bind and loose. He gives them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He gives them the authority to forgive sins in his name. And so we believe that that authority then is passed on from generation to generation through uh, apostolic succession with each bishop that's ordained. Um, and so there, you know, there is this unbroken line of succession between the authority that we believe that the church has today and that authority given to the apostles by Christ, which ultimately originates in God. So authority, to exercise authority, is an exercise of the will, and uh, it's, a, it's a rational exercise of the will. You're exercising your will with, with reason behind it. Um, so we can't use that term, properly speaking, to something like the Bible, which is not a person. It's the inspired word of God. God is the authority, but the Bible as a, a text can't be an authority because the Bible doesn't have will. It doesn't have reason. It's the product of reason, God's reason in this case. So the Bible can be authoritative, and we certainly believe that the Bible is authoritative, but the Bible is not an authority because the Bible can't decide things for itself, right? So when someone is reading the Bible, like John Wycliffe or any of the later Protestant reformers, um, when someone is reading the Bible and saying, well, I read the Bible as saying this, this is how I'm interpreting the Bible, what they're doing is they're, they're relying upon themselves and their own interpretation as the authority, right? So an authoritative text like the scripture needs to have an authority to interpret it. 
As Catholics, we believe that authority resides in the Catholic Church, in the, the bishops that are in union with the Bishop of Rome as the successors of the apostles. They have the ultimate authority to interpret this authoritative text. And when someone like Wycliffe points to the Bible and says, well, I read things differently, they're, they're not really using the Bible as their authority. Um, they're using themselves. They're relying upon themselves as their authority to interpret the text in, in their own way. So what are some of the things that were going on in the Catholic Church that, that Wycliffe said you know, didn't jive with his reading of the Bible? Um, well, one of the big things was wealth and property. Um, you know, and he went above and beyond just criticizing the high-ranking uh, you know, bishops as being overly affluent in their lifestyle, um, because a lot of that, like I said, is justified. Um, and, and it led to abuses like pluralism and absenteeism. Um, but Wycliffe went beyond that. He, he criticized, for example, monasteries for owning property. Now, a lot of these monasteries had been around for centuries, and during that time, they had acquired um, vast amounts of land, uh, largely through donations that people gave to the monasteries, and they cultivated that land. Um, and so we see a lot of villages growing up around monasteries. They were good stewards of the land. But he criticized them for, for owning that land because he said the church should not own any property at all. In Wycliffe's view, the church should not accumulate land, it should not accumulate wealth, that that was against the example that, that he saw in the, in the New Testament. And so he advocated for a church that owned no property, that possessed no wealth, and, um, you know, of course, but you need a certain amount of property and wealth in order to, to, to do the things that the church does, right? To have buildings to worship in, to aid and assist the poor, and to, you know, supply for the needs of the clergy. I mean, you don't have to live an affluent, wealthy lifestyle, but you've got to eat something. You have to have a, you know, a place to sleep. Um, you know, and, and as St. Paul says, you know, labor deserves his wages. Um, so Wycliffe would argue that it, that role fell to the state, that the church should essentially be maintained by the state so that the church herself wouldn't be corrupted by owning any, any property or any wealth. So um, that would, you know, put the, the, the state in a position of having a lot of influence over the church, you know, however. Um, Wycliffe also uh, challenged church teaching in other ways. He um, began to deny later in his life the, um, the validity of the sacraments. He denied the necessity of confessing one's sins to a priest. Um, he denied the existence of purgatory, um, and along with that, the, the need for any kind of indulgences. Um, he denied the veneration of saints and relics. Um, and in all of this, he said, you know, there was no justification for these things in Scripture, and so the church needed to do away with them. Um, his most serious attack on the church, though, was against the Eucharist. He came to deny the doctrine of transubstantiation, which is the real presence of the body and blood of Christ. Um, he objected, objected to this not just on, on scriptural grounds, but he also objected to this on philosophical grounds because he claimed that it was metaphysically impossible for the bread to cease being bread and to become something else, right? And for the wine to cease being wine and to become something else. He, he saw that as an impossibility. So he, he challenged the Eucharist. Um, and, and really, most of these things, if you think about it, stemmed from his his uh, challenge of the clergy because if you if you don't have the Eucharist then what do you need priests for if you don't need to go to confession then what do you need priests for so by challenging the validity of the sacraments he's challenging the validity of, of holy orders and the whole clerical state and the hierarchy of the church um, which just fit in with a lot of his other anti-clerical writings um, all right, so Wycliffe early on in his career was was a pretty popular guy among the people. Um, his his preaching and his writings against the the corruption of the clergy um, won him a lot of popular support because, as I said, people aren't dumb and they saw the good examples of the Franciscans and the Dominicans and others embracing this this life of poverty, and they compared that, you know, with the, these absentee bishops and, you know, living high on the hog and the whole scandal of the Avignon papacy and, and all of that. And, and yeah, so Wycliffe's preachings against the higher-ranking 
corrupt members of the clergy um, resonated with them, and he was really popular. Later in his career, when he started to attack other aspects of church teaching, especially the sacraments, especially the Eucharist, his popularity among the people really waned. Um, that, that lost him a lot of support. Um, so, um, yeah, especially the, the, the attack on, on the Eucharist. Um, he had a group of followers. They're sometimes called the Lollards. Um, sometimes they're called the poor priests, even though most of them were, were actually lay, laymen. Um, they got wrapped up kind of in, in a lot of political revolt um, as well um, in, in England. You know, once you start challenging authority, you're not going to limit yourself necessarily to church authority. So um, the, uh, the Lollards um, became associated with the peasant revolt in England in the year 1381. Um, even though Wycliffe himself denied any involvement in the peasant revolt, it was clear that the Lollard movement that he had kind of inspired had grown at that time to advocate a lot of political and social reform as well as clerical reform. And so even though Wycliffe had enjoyed a lot of support among the nobility, um, the Lollard movement um, that, that he inspired was very heavily suppressed by the, the English government following that, uh, that unsuccessful revolt. Um, Wycliffe, like I said, he, he died a short time after that. He died around the year 1384. And, um, that would have been the end of the story, except his teachings were picked up by another man later on named John Huss. And this is the second figure that we're going to talk about today. Um, John Huss, um, was a Bohemian priest, um, and he was born around the year 1370. He was ordained a priest in the year 1400. And he studied and taught at the University of Prague, um, which was kind of the center of the reform movement of the Bohemian Church at the time. Um, and he was heavily influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe. Now, how could he there in Prague be influenced by the writings of John Wycliffe, which who was a, you know who was a priest in Oxford? Um, well, there was actually quite an exchange of ideas between England and Bohemia at this time, because King Richard II of England, um, who reigned from 1377 to 1399, um, he had married Anne of Bohemia, and so the courts of those two kingdoms were linked. And because of that, students from uh, from Bohemia often came to England to study, and vice versa, you know, students from England, from Oxford, you know, would go to the University of Prague to study. So there was a lot of exchange of ideas um, between uh, both of those two places. And that included the writings and the teachings of John Wycliffe during his time teaching at Oxford. So um, uh, his writings were, were popular there in Prague, just as they were popular in Oxford. Um, John Huss, we know, translated at least one of... Wycliffe's books into the Czech language, um, and he borrowed very heavily from Wycliffe's ideas in his own teaching. Um, Father Richard Hogan, um, who is the author of the book Descent from the Creed that I'm, I'm using for a lot of my information for this podcast series, he says that um, Huss was able, quote, to liberate Wycliffe's teachings from the ponderous scholastic arguments used by the Englishmen. End quote. So I guess you could describe Huss's version as kind of the, the Reader's Digest version of Wycliffe's ideas, right? Or maybe Wycliffe for dummies. Um, so he helped to popularize and keep alive a lot of Wycliffe's teaching um, there in, in Prague during that successive generation. Um, as part of doing that, Huss had uh, taken up the practice of preaching um, in private chapels uh, to, to groups of laity, um, and that's where a lot of his like anti-clerical and anti-sacramental um, ideas that he was picking up from Wycliffe um, were spread. It was through the teaching in these small private chapels. Um, so... There was also, we're not going to get too heavily into this, there was also a lot of political um, overtone to John Huss, you know, carrying on Wycliffe's anti-clerical teachings in Bohemia. Because there was a, a fairly significant Bohemian nationalist movement that was afoot at the time that was essentially anti 
German, specifically anti-Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and that, that idea of German authority associated with a Holy Roman Emperor was very much linked with ecclesial authority in the church within the context of, of the Bohemian kind of political culture of the day. So within that climate, when John Huss is criticizing the clergy, that was equated with opposing German control of Bohemia, which was popular. And that goes, I go into that because that explains why Huss, even though he was preaching a lot against the clergy, actually enjoyed for a while um, a lot of support from his own bishop. Um, for example, in the year 1405, uh, the Pope, um, the Pope in Rome, as opposed to the Pope in Avignon at the time, um, the Pope in Rome asked uh, the Archbishop of Prague to um, take measures against the teachings of Wycliffe that were being spread in, uh, you know, from in Prague and from the University of Prague, particularly his teachings on the Eucharist. Um, and uh, despite the fact that Huss was the one doing this, spreading Wycliffe's teachings, um, he was protected by the Archbishop. The Archbishop didn't carry out the Pope's uh, request. Um, in the year 1408, uh, the Pope, uh, again, the Pope in Rome, um, issued um, a letter specifically condemning Wycliffe's teaching, and that letter prompted the King of Bohemia, King Wenceslaus IV, to kind of investigate what was going on in Prague at the time. And as a result of that royal investigation, uh, the University of Prague demanded that all of Wycliffe's writings be turned over to the Archbishop of Prague for correction before they could be used in the university. And John Huss complied with that order. He followed through. But things changed the next year, in the year 1409, when the Pope ordered the Archbishop of Prague to remove all the writings of Wycliffe and to forbid preaching within his diocese except for in cathedral, collegiate, parish, or monastic churches. In other words, not only would all of Wycliffe's writings be removed from the university, but Huss would no longer be permitted to preach in private chapels, which had been his practice and was a principal way that he was continuing on and promoting Wycliffe's teachings. So once that order came down, Huss refused to obey. Um, the Archbishop of Prague did comply with the Pope's request and, um, and did those things, withdrew Wycliffe's teachings from the university and forbid preaching except in officially designated churches, um, but Huss himself refused to comply. And so that led to uh, the Archbishop excommunicating Huss and any of his followers in the year 1410. Huss appealed this excommunication to the Pope, which Pope, right? Because now 1410, we have three people claiming to be Pope. So the Pope that Huss appealed to was the, the new papal claimant that was elected by the Council of Pisa in the year before, if you remember. Um, and this Pope was named John Twenty-Third. Aha, but don't we have a Pope John Twenty-Third who ruled in the 20th century? Yes, we do. And it's because this Pope that was elected by the Council of Pisa um, was not actually a legitimate Pope. He's what history calls an anti-Pope. So, uh, but he took the name John Twenty-Third, um, and so he was the one that John Huss appealed to and uh, to lift his excommunication. But he upheld his excommunication, so Huss didn't get any satisfaction there. So now we have the Pope, um, and the Pope, and the Pope, <laughs> you know, all three of the people claimants. Uh, we have the Archbishop of Prague, we have the King of Bohemia, King Wenceslas, um, and, you know, the University of Prague. They were all aligned against Huss, right? The, the, there was a growing consist consensus that the teachings of John Wycliffe, specifically his anti-sacramental teachings, were against um, the Catholic Church, and so they were forbidden, um, but Huss was continuing. Um, Huss left Prague. Prague was no longer the place for him to be. He wrote a book entitled On the Church, 
um, in which he denied the need for any hierarchical structure within the church. Um, so basically denying the need for any kind of clerical office um, and denied the requirement that Christians obey um, the, the hierarchical office within the church. So he's really trying to um, pull the, the rug out from under the feet of the church in terms of ecclesial authority. Um, and this is characteristic of a lot of you know these medieval and later heresies, whereas a lot of the earlier heresies that we've looked at, you know, um, denied certain things about uh, Christ, the Christological heresies, Arianism, Nestorianism, and so forth. Um, these later heresies would deny uh, certain attributes of the church. They would go after the church herself, specifically denying church authority. Um, and that's really a masterstroke if you think about it, because if you deny the authority of the church, then you're denying the church's ability to correct you in any other regard. So these teachings about, um, you know, uh, about church authority, once you reject those, you know, you, you're just opening up the book to accept all kinds of other errors um, because you no longer have an authority that you recognize as, um, you know, as able to correct you, to, to give correction. So that's where, where Huss kind of found himself. He's denying the authority of the church. Um, now, he met a really unfortunate end. Um, in the year 1414, Huss was invited to attend the, uh, the Council of Constance. Uh, the Council of Constance was called primarily to resolve the problem of the Great Schism, right? There were three people claiming to be the Pope at this time. That's obviously not a situation that uh, can endure in the church. Uh, so the, this council, like the Council of Pisa before, uh, was called to address that problem. Um, unlike the Council of Pisa, it actually would successfully bring that to a, a resolution. So after the Council of Constance, you would have only one Pope. That, that whole thing was resolved. Um, but while that council was in session, um, the Holy Roman Emperor, um, whose name was Sigismund, he was actually the brother of King Wenceslaus of Bohemia, he invited um, John Huss to come and uh, present himself to the council um, because being brother to the King of Bohemia, he wanted this, this Hussite controversy that was affecting the church in Bohemia to be settled. So he invited John Huss to come to the council. He uh, granted him safe conduct to the council. Huss came, um, and he presented his his views. Um, and, uh, and during this time, he was able to reject a lot of false statements that had been attributed to him, but he refused to back down uh, from his support of Wycliffe's teachings. Um, the... The emperor Sigismund tried to convince him to change his mind. A lot of others, um, bishops that were gathered there, tried to persuade him to change his mind. But Huss remained obstinate. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, while it's clear from his own teaching that Huss wholeheartedly embraced Wycliffe's um, anti-clerical views and, and views against church authority, there was nothing that you know, in, in Huss's own teachings that would suggest that he supported Wycliffe's um, anti-sacramental views, uh, specifically his teaching on the Eucharist. Um, Huss himself didn't necessarily seem to agree with Wycliffe on those terms, but he still refused to condemn Wycliffe's teachings about the sacraments and the Eucharist. And he said the reason was he had not studied them sufficiently. And this just kind of goes to show the extent of, I guess, the hubris or the ego that comes from putting yourself in a position of rejecting the authority of the church. Because, you know, here you have Wycliffe condemning um, or denying the real presence of the Eucharist. And Huss himself doesn't necessarily seem to agree with that. And the church is saying, can you condemn Wycliffe's teachings on the Eucharist? And Huss saying, no, I can't condemn them, even though he doesn't agree with them. I can't condemn them because I haven't studied the matter sufficiently. So he's not willing to go along with the, you know, long-standing teaching and tradition of the church upholding the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist 
unless he himself personally can study the matter and decide whether or not he agrees with the Catholic Church or whether or not he agrees with with Wycliffe. Um, so every single teaching then, once you've removed church authority from the equation, every single individual teaching becomes something that you as an individual can either accept or reject. There's no continuity to the... Um, uh, the, the church's doctrine anymore. It's not a holistic approach. It's it's piecemeal. Um, so um, so in the end, um, you know, um, Wycliffe was was condemned by that council, um, and uh, I mean I'm sorry, Huss was condemned by by that council because he. Um, refused to condemn the teachings of Wycliffe, even in those areas where Huss himself probably agreed more with the Catholic Church uh, than with, with Wycliffe, like on the Eucharist. And so Huss was then handed over to the secular authorities. He was handed over to the Holy Roman Emperor. And it was um, uh, as a prisoner of the Holy Roman Empire that he was uh, burned at the stake. Um, and that act of arresting him at that council and then having him burned at the stake um, arose or gave rise to a lot of strong feelings of resentment among the Bohemian people. Because remember, there's this also, there's this political movement in Bohemia at the time that's very anti-German, anti-Holy Roman Empire, and so they they look at this as a betrayal because Huss, even though he was excommunicated by the church and even though he was guilty of heresy, nevertheless, he was granted safe conduct to this council by the Holy Roman Emperor himself, Sigismund, the brother of the King of Bohemia. And despite being granted safe conduct, you know, he was arrested there and burned at the stake um, by the, the Holy Roman Empire, you know, the very empire that had granted him that safe conduct. So um, that didn't win the, the emperor or the church a lot of friends in, uh, you know, in Bohemia. Um, and, uh, and despite not having a lot of support, like I said, from the university, from the bishop, from the king, um, Huss did gain a lot of support from the people, the popular people there. Um, we don't have time in this podcast to go into like all the politics of, of, of the Bohemian region at the time, but Huss inspired a movement there that was just as much political as it was religious. Um, and uh, his what came to be seen as a martyrdom on, on his part um, led to an actual rebellion in Bohemia against the, the Holy Roman Empire that would last until the year 1434. Now, I also want to note here that um, in the year 1999, uh, Pope St. John Paul II um, expressed uh, profound regret over what he called the cruel death of, of John Huss um, and the, the conflicts um, and divisions within Bohemia that would result because of that. So that is something that the church has looked back on and, uh, and, and apologized to the Bohemian people for. Um, so, um, so anyway, just to draw things to a close here, that rebellion in Bohemia um, against the Holy Roman uh, Empire um, would would come to an end, like I said, in the year 1434. And at that time, the, the Hussites, as they came to be known, um, split into two different groups. Um, one of the, the, the characteristics that the Hussite um, rebellion, the religious characteristics of the Hussite rebellion, um, was what's called ultraquism. Um, ultraquism is, is called because the Hussites had developed their teaching around the Eucharist. Again, they didn't follow Wycliffe's denial of the real presence of the Eucharist, even though they followed Wycliffe's teachings in other ways. But the Hussites had begun teaching that in order to be saved, you have to receive the Eucharist under both the forms of bread and wine. And in Latin, that is sub utraque specie, under both species. So they, they can be called the ultraquists, or utraquists, um, and, and that practice is called utraquism. 
Um, now we may think, what's the big deal? Because you go to Mass on a Sunday, chances are you're going to receive communion or at least have it offered to you under both bread and wine, both species. Um, but that was not the normative method of receiving communion by the laity in the church at the time. That's something that became normative really after the Second Vatican Council uh, in the 1960s. The ordinary practice prior was for the the lay people in the church to receive communion um, under the form of bread only. Um, and a lot of that was for practical reasons. Um, it's, uh, it, it's logistically a lot more difficult to administer uh, the precious blood from the chalice to a large group of people. Um, but, uh, um, but nevertheless, that was the practice. And so the Hussites here were saying, no, in order to be saved, you have to receive under both species. Um, and they cited for, for this teaching um, John six fifty four, where Jesus says, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you shall not have life in you. Um, this, this teaching stemmed from a misunderstanding about the nature of transubstantiation. What the church teaches is that the whole body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ is fully present, even in the smallest crumb of, or the tiniest drop of the Eucharist. So there's no division in Christ. So even if you're getting just a fraction of a host, or if you're getting a small sip from the chalice, you're getting the whole Jesus, the whole body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's not like half of Christ is, is in the host and half of Christ is in the chalice. Uh, you know, the, the host is just his body and the chalice is just his blood. Um, you, you get the full Christ, whether you receive just from one species or not. Um, but... Um, uh, but nevertheless, that was the ultraquist attitude, the ultraquist's um, attitude, that you had to receive both. Um, at the Council of Basel, which met between the years 1431 and 1437, um, the church came to a compromise with the ultraquist Hussites. Uh, they were allowed to receive communion under both kinds, which, remember, was not normative at the time, but they were given special permission to do that as long as they agreed to the following conditions. One, they had to confess that the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ were contained whole and entire, both under the form of bread and under that of wine, right, to ensure that they had a proper understanding of the doctrine of transubstantiation. And two, that they retract the statement that communion under both forms is necessary for salvation. So if they could agree to those, those terms, they would be allowed to receive under both both species. Some of the Hussites agreed to that, and they became known as the Calixtines, after the Latin word for chalice, because they had permission to receive from the chalice, which was unusual at the time. Some did not agree to that. They became known as the Taborites, after Mount Tabor, because they had developed the practice of, of holding their meetings on, on mountaintops. Um... So uh, those two groups of Hussites uh, uh, then entered into a conflict with each other, and that conflict was ended in the year 1434 when the Calixtines achieved a military victory over the Taborites, um, and that effectively ended the rebellion in Bohemia. Again, it's a military victory because this was all tied in with a lot of political you know, factioning and, and everything that was going on in Bohemia that we don't have time to, to get involved in. Um, some of the Taborites, even though defeated, would persist in their beliefs, and eventually, in the year 1457, they formed a group called the Brethren's Union, and that's better known now as the Bohemian Brethren or the Moravian Brethren. And um, that group would then later merge with the Protestant movement in the 16th century, um, and so they're still around, you know, today. Um, so, just draw this little train of ideas here, right? You had Wycliffe. Um, he um, was was a heretic. He, uh, he was guilty of denying not just um, you know not just criticizing church authorities, which anyone is free to do, but denying the legitimacy of of the clergy and denying the need for the sacraments, the validity of the sacraments. So he was a heretic, but he didn't really found a movement of any real significance. But then those ideas were picked up by John Huss, 
who did found a movement um, which got tied into a lot of political turmoil um, at the time. And, uh, but the greater part of that movement would eventually, thankfully, um, be reunited back in with the church. Remnants of it continued to survive and then later kind of merged in with Protestant movements uh, that came about later and that still survive today. So both Wycliffe and Huss uh, initially were reacting against what they perceived as abuses and excesses among the higher ranking authorities within the church. Um, and they preached against that, that abuse that led to them preaching against clerical authority and questioning the nature of authority of the church in general. Um, and in doing so, they began to rely upon their own interpretation of what the scripture says um, and came to deny the, the traditional structure of, of the church, even in the case of Wycliffe, going on to deny the, the necessity of the sacraments, including the Eucharist, including confession. Um, so a lot of these ideas might start to sound familiar to us as ideas that would come up again a few generations later as part of the Protestant um, re rebellion. Um, and so Wycliffe and Huss are sometimes called, you know, morning stars of the Reformation by Protestants because they looked back and they see in some of these teachings a prefigurement of what would later come um, with, with the Protestant Reform. Um, and, and that's what we're going to talk about next week when we come back. We'll, we'll talk about um, Protestantism. Um, because of the limitations of our podcast, we're only going to be talking about Protestantism in um, a very general sense. Um, um, but nevertheless, it's, it's important um, because Protestantism, is, unlike a lot of these other movements that we've been talking about, is still something that's very much alive and with us today and part of the religious landscape in particular of the United States. And so it's important that we understand it, its origins um, and, and the Catholic Church's response to that. So that's going to be next week. Um, I hope you come back and join us then. Um, we're kind of getting to the end of our summer and, and wrapping things up. So um, I'm already thinking ahead towards mid-August when our school year starts back in campus ministry. I hope you are too and that you're looking forward to joining us. Have a great rest of your summer and we will talk to you next week. God bless.